Become spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men-at-arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min-maxers, horny bards, and blood-soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role-playing games here on Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your RPG treasure trove. I'm your host and king of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and this is the show where we make old school young again. I am, of course, the R in OSR, and uh, tonight we're actually not talking about uh, role-playing games or the OSR or anything like that. Tonight, we are going to be doing something a little bit different because I have with me here uh, the co-host of the BS Bargain Bin podcast, Mr. Ben Mason, and we're going to be talking all about the cinematic history of Dungeons & Dragons. So, Ben, welcome to Rolling Bones. Thank you so much for having me on, Ryan. Um, I, we're in for a, a bit of an adventure this evening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but before we start off on that adventure, uh, just a couple quick questions that I have to kind of get your background and, you know, how familiar you are with role-playing games and where your tastes lie as far as those go. Uh, yeah, you know, I sure. ask everyone the same introductory questions when they come on. So first and foremost, how did you first encounter uh, role-playing games? Um, hearing about them in uh, grade school from the, uh, the older kids. Uh, growing up in a really rural area, I never really had the opportunity to actually play uh, any role-playing games with the other kids. We were way too far apart. So I found the fighting fantasy books on my own and got that single player kind of uh, fantasy adventure going. Um, it wasn't up until only a few years ago where a friend who had been asking me time and time again to join in uh, with his friends for a campaign that I finally agreed. And honestly, I had the time of my life. Uh, I hadn't played with them again after that, but I had played a few other campaigns with some other people and <laughs> it was so much fun. Uh, much more fun than I expected, much more fun than I had actually been told about. So moving from Toronto and that group of people back to Halifax, where I don't really know the crowd so well, hopefully soon I'll find some other people to play with, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. Gotcha. Now, when you say growing up rural, um, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, Ben is coming to us from the Great White North here. Uh, he is Canadian, <laughs> if you couldn't tell, uh, with his with his beard and his toque and his accent. You got to prepare for the elements, man. Absolutely. Uh, but when we're talking about growing up rural, was this like Letterkenny rural? Oh, worse. <laughs> much, much worse. That that's uh, that's a tame version of rural rural living in Canada. No, I basically grew up in the forest, um, to the point where like you'd have to do bear checks when you went outside to make sure you could make it to the car before, you know, some uh, unfortunate occurrence. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, so moving from that to Toronto was a bit of a bit of a change, but a welcomed one. Gotcha. 
Now, in the uh, the time that you've spent with role playing games, mm-hmm. uh, what would you say is kind of like your fondest memory of role playing with your friends? Um, with my friends, it was just honestly shooting the shit and having a fun time. Uh, but I think my my fondest memory was playing with people that I had just met. Okay. Because not only were we actually having a lot of fun building our characters, going through these adventures, but we're bonding as strangers doing it. So by the end of a campaign, I was surrounded by a group of new friends. It was such a a, a personal growth for me mm-hmm. that that's what kind of pushed me into playing more and more. It's just a very positive experience. Gotcha. Gotcha. And of course, there is uh, one last introductory question, but I will save that for the end of the show. Make people hold on and wait for that one. Uh, so let's kind of dive into the topic here. And uh, you actually wanted to start a little bit before I thought we were going to start, uh, but you wanted to begin the conversation with mazes and monsters. So yes. um, I'll, I'll kind of turn things over to you to introduce this movie. <laughs> I'm sure everyone out there who's watching this is familiar with mazes and monsters, but for anyone who's like, I don't know, my age or younger, uh, who's not heard of the, uh, the acting debut of Tom Hanks, uh, let's, uh, let's dive in a little bit and talk about what this movie actually is. Yeah. It was, uh, the way back when of 1982, when mazes and monsters comes up, uh, based off of a novel by, uh, Rona Jaffe. And that novel is fictitiously, or factually, I should say, erroneous, um, based off of a, a bunch of inaccurate news articles about a missing rich kid at a, at a college in the States. Um, the movie talks about the character Robbie, who's played by Tom Hanks, and how he's starting at a new college, uh, befriends a few other people who are all about this new game, Mazes and Monsters. They have regular scheduled meetings where they'll play, and they're always looking for a fourth. So even though Robbie refuses to play because he's had a bad experience, uh, they eventually convince him to join. And Robbie has a mental breakdown. He's, he snaps mm-hmm. and is forever lost in his character of the cleric of, uh, of uh, Pardieu. Um, this takes him on his quest of escaping the small town where the college is and going to New York, where he almost commits suicide by jumping off of uh, the... Uh, one of the twin towers. Mm-hmm. Um, this was one giant cover story that the, uh, the young man, James Dallas Egbert, the third had, he, he, he did have severe mental issues and would run and hide. And a police investigator who was trying to track him down actually found him. And he pleaded to come up with a cover story because unfortunately this young man's suicidal. Um, so that's where the, uh, getting lost in uh, in a tabletop RPG kind of came into fruition. And that's what journalists took and ran with. So Rona Jaffe took that idea, wrote the book about it, movies based off of it. And it basically came out as one giant anti D and D keep your kids away from this game campaign for parents. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that just kills any attempt at making D and D popular in film. Mm-hmm. So we go from, a film that's warning children not to play the game, warning their parents not to let their children play the game up until 2000, when we get a movie that just makes everybody not want to play the game. (laughs) 
Exactly. And, and, and to, to back up a little bit, still in 1982, it's right around this point, uh, Gary Gygax has kind of left TSR and is in Hollywood essentially trying to make D&D popular and trying to get a D&D movie made. It's, I believe it's actually in 1982 that he got his hands on like the first script proposed for a D&D movie. So it's right at the same time Gary's trying to make D&D a thing in pop culture, and then this movie comes out and the satanic panic is happening all around it, um, kind of influencing the way that your your average uh, household views D&D. And so that is definitely a contributing factor in the D&D movie entering an almost 20-year development hell at that point. Oh, definitely. You better not let your parents catch you playing D&D and listening to Judas Priest or Black Sabbath, <laughs> or that's the end of it. Yep. Um, is the 2000 movie the first one you're overly familiar with? Yes. Yeah, that's the first one. Uh, I've seen it all the way through. I've actually seen it all the way through a couple times. Well done. <laughs> not many people have. They make it about halfway in and, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But what what was your anticipation or excitement for the movie when it was coming out? Because this is the first officially branded, big budget, theatrical Dungeons & Dragons film. Yep. Uh, so just to kind of put my cards on the table... When this movie was coming out, I was five, and I had not ever oh played D anD. Yeah, I'm t- I'm 27. So, um, yeah, very that, good. I, I was not aware of D anD. D at all. Uh, you know, that I didn't know this movie existed until I was like a teenager. Um, so yeah, I I didn't have any kind of expectations or anticipation for this movie at all. By the time I knew it existed, I knew it existed because I knew it was a legendarily bad movie. So it is up there for yeah. sure as one of the worst. Um which is so unfortunate because it started with so much promise when you look at development. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look in around a 100 million dollar budget. Yeah. Fantastic but it just gets dragged on for so long. And I think while they were in pre-production, TSR sold the rights to Wizards, right? Yep. 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 It's at that point that Wizards of the Coast takes over, and this movie actually comes out the same year that the third edition of Dungeons & Dragons comes out. And, and they decided that a movie wasn't going to happen. Yeah. It was going to be possibly a TV series, maybe, we'll talk about it, kind of a scenario. And then you had all the different actors, or sorry, directors attached to direct, like James Cameron, Rennie Harlan, uh, special effects god Stan Winston, um, just drop out. And for investors, that's a nightmare. If people are just dropping out of your production left and right, why why would they put their money into that production? Mm-hmm. So the production budget drops from a hundred million to twenty twenty five. Eventually, they agree on 30, and that balloons it slightly up to 35 million. But now the only person that can direct it is the producer that tried to get it off the ground, who was just a fan of D&D in the first place. He's never directed before. Mm -hmm. And now he's got this massive property to deal with and to promote and make it look good and do it justice for all the fans. So you get actors like Jeremy Irons. Fantastic. Bruce Payne. If you're a fan of British cinema, 
Bruce Payne is huge. He was one of the, uh, well, you know how there was the Rat Pack and then the uh, in the 80s, America had the uh, the, the Brat Pack. Yep. Um, well, he was a member of the Brit Pack. And that included Daniel Day-Lewis and Gary Oldman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they never really worked together. So Bruce Payne was major for an English grab, along with Jeremy Irons. But then we have Justin Whalen, who myself, I only recognized as Jimmy Olsen from Lois and Clark. Yeah. Now, if he's your lead, we're kind of unbalanced here. <laughs> yep. Pair him up with Marlon Wayans doing his scary movie shtick again. And we've got some real problems here. Mm-hmm. So with this setup, this budget level, this level of story, I don't know if you want to get into the actual plot of the film, but these characters, how do you think they could have actually made an acceptable Dungeons and Dragons story? Mm. And, and one other uh, person that I wanted to mention there is you have uh, Thora Birch coming straight yes. out of American Beauty. And it's very clear from her performance that she would rather be almost anywhere else. I don't think she has any idea what she's saying yeah. in the movie. It's all over the place. There's no emotion. She honestly doesn't understand what she's saying. So mm-hmm. it must have just been a paycheck. But if a paycheck dropped from a $100 million budget down to 25 again, like we say, ballooned to 35 she's probably not making that much, especially for the screen time. That's all going to Jeremy, Jeremy Irons, who's honestly probably having the most fun he's ever had in his life. Yes. Yeah, that man I, is all it, over the place. This movie, to to stay on Jeremy Irons for a second, this movie feels like a turning point in Jeremy Irons' career. <laughs> up until yeah. up until two thousand, Jeremy Irons was like a prestige actor. Jeremy Irons was Oscar winner, Oscar nominated. Uh, just one of the like giants of cinema and also, you know, did a, a great turn as the villain in Die Hard with a Vengeance. This he was like a top tier, top caliber, prestige level actor that you would put in like serious movies. Yeah. But after Dungeons and Dragons, it's almost like Jeremy Irons told his agent, just say yes to everything. He essentially turned into like a classy Nicolas Cage. From this point forward. <laughs> wow, that's a dig. Um, you you are right, though. He was a go-to actor for quality. Things like Dead Ringers. You mentioned Die Hard with a Vengeance, where I have to say the, the plan he had was to escape to Nova Scotia. <laughs> yep. Fantastic spot. But yeah, as soon as he hit Dungeons & Dragons, that was basically his Jaws 4 for <laughs> Michael Caine. Yep. Where you knew that it's probably done at this point. I've ruined my career. So yes, like you said, grab what you can run with it. Just take the money. Cause eventually offers are going to stop coming. Mm-hmm. Um, the results of the movie. Um, th- there are so many problems here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I want to talk about the scope of the film, how much story they tried to cram into 108 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to work. No, no, not at all. Um, I, well, we had uh, chatted briefly before starting recording. Um, I'm not overly familiar with how deep into lore these movies go, but if there was any lore it present in this, 
it was a complete disservice to the fans because they just gloss over so much to try and cram that story in. Um, is there anything that they touched on that you, looking back anyway now, are thinking, well, I would have liked to see more of this because it actually mentioned something relevant to the series, to the game? So what's interesting about all of these movies, with the exception of Dragons of Autumn Twilight, which is based on the Dragonlance novels, um, none of these movies are set in any of the established D&D settings. <laughs> the, the understanding that I had about this movie, it was, it's very loosely based on a setting called Mistara, which was basically uh, TSR's version of now that we do role-playing games, this is kind of our setting for if we want to go back to our roots and do wargaming. So Mastara's very kind of like heavy on factions. Uh, it's very military-focused. But like I said, it's very loosely based on Mastara, so almost none of that makes it to screen. Uh, and they definitely didn't go for anything like Ravenloft or Forgotten Realms or Dark Sun or Greyhawk or any of the other very lore-rich environments that they had at their disposal uh, to make a D&D movie. They just immediately go into, here's this overly complicated world that we're going to somehow simultaneously over and under explain. And yeah. now you're just going to have to watch Jeremy Irons not care and everyone else <laughs> not try. Well, Jeremy Irons, was, he wasn't even chewing the scenery. He was just scarfing it down. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Payne as um, Damodar looked ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And we will get him in another film. But uh, you... you you just covered everything beautifully, which leads me to the question, who is this movie for? They're cramming way too much down a casual viewer's throat for them to even care about what's happening. And it seems like it's a complete insult to everyone else. Mm -hmm. This movie seems like it was probably killed by committee. Agreed. Because yeah. you, you yeah. mentioned the, the director was also the producer uh, and he was a huge D&D &D fan. Yes. I imagine the first script that kind of crossed New Line Cinema's uh, doorstep here, uh, which, by the way, I don't, I don't mean to gloss over this. New Line Cinema dis distributed this movie, and it came out a year before Fellowship of the Ring. So at this point, Fellowship of the, all of the Lord of the Rings movies were in post-production when this movie came out. And had they not been filmed back-to-back, -back, I guarantee the uh, outcome of this movie would have been only getting one Lord of the Rings movie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely dodged a bullet with that one. Yeah. But I, I hate to say luckily, but this movie bombed hard. Mm -hmm. And I think they really needed to put a stop to it because if they went immediately into a follow-up sequel... God knows what we would have ended up with. Yeah. But with a $45 million budget or a $35 million budget, it's made 33.8, just under 39 or, or sorry, just under $34 million. So there is no chance that they're going to follow this up with another theatrical attempt. Mm -hmm. So where do you go when you know you're not going to succeed in theater? We'll get there. Direct to DVD. Yeah.
um, after this, we end up with a movie that you you didn't really know about and I'm not overly familiar with, but I wanted to bring it up. And that is Scourge of Worlds, a Dungeons and Dragons adventure from 2003. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a DVD release. Uh, it is a choose your own adventure film. So almost like quick time event, the movie. Yeah. Uh, but you had a party of three people and there were several quests that you would go on. And there are quite a few different options to choose along the way that would give you many different results. Um, but nobody ever really heard of it. It never took off and it slowly died. Hmm. Luckily, they brought it back with Dungeons and Dragons Wrath of the Dragon God in 2005, hmm. two years later. But before we get into Wrath of the Dragon God, uh, which I honestly don't have a lot to say about that movie. Uh, but what I was talking about earlier and that it was killed by committee, I think we're on the same page with that. But just for everyone out there watching or listening, I imagine the first script was something very respectful, something that took everything very seriously. And then the focus groups were brought in and the executives were brought in. They're like, well, you know, that needs more humor. It needs, you know, can, can we go a little bit younger with the leads? Uh, you know, those weigh-ins boys are uh, very popular right now. Can we get one of them in the movie? And that's where things start to compound and the seriousness uh, that a, a, a property like this is given by a fan is eroded by the studio going, no, change this, change that. We have to appeal to as many people as we possibly can. And when you try to make a movie that's for everyone, usually what happens is you make a movie that's for no one. Exactly. And I believe the number is 16 rewrites for for, uh, the 2000 film. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, With um, Wrath of the Dragon God, we only get one returning character, uh, actor, Bruce Payne as Damodar again. Mm -hmm. Uh, The movie... I, I personally believe the movie is a little bit more enjoyable than the, the first one. Um, that's not saying much, and that's not me praising it. It's just a little bit more tolerable. Um, again, going into problems here, it, it, this is all from a business perspective, and they're just kind of stunting their own growth. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, it went direct to DVD, but at the same time, it had a, a limited theatrical release in a few countries. Now, the problem here is... Yes, the theater companies, like in Canada, would be like Cineplex. Mm-hmm. Um, they they do pay you for the exhibition of your film, which is great. But you yourself as a producer are responsible for advertising the fact that it's in theaters. So if it's a limited theatrical release and they expect you to advertise, you're going to be spending more money on advertising than you are pulling in money from what they paid you for uh, for theatrical distribution. Yeah. So you're shooting yourself in the foot already. You're taking a loss going direct to DVD. That's a territorial distribution nightmare mm-hmm. because you're dealing with UK regions, uh, North American regions, other regions around the world. And you're going to divvy that up. And a lot of people don't want to because they saw the first movie. Yeah. So you're not making much money there. And having a lower budget, again, $12 million going from the previous, uh, you're not going to be able to spend a lot on special effects. So you have to try and figure out how you're going to tell a story that doesn't rely on that. And honestly, for the most part, I think they kind of figured that out. But when your villain is a henchman from the first film that wasn't really worrisome whatsoever he was just more of like a thorn in your side Mm -hmm. that's the villain now 
You've yeah. already taken away any clout that he has, so he's not really a threat, so people don't care. <laughs> Again, when we're talking marketing, that's promotion. They've already spent most of the budget just trying to get the movie out there in the first place. No money for promotion. Nobody really hears about it, and those that do wish they hadn't. And the movie flops. $12 million budget, $1.7 million take. Yep. Do you yep. just give up at this point? Well, no. to, to go back to something you said earlier, uh, when you said that this movie is more enjoyable uh, than than the previous one, I agree with <laughs> I you. Gonna... I, I, I agree with you. Wow. Okay. But I want to read verbatim from the notes that I took while watching uh this this particular movie so i said in my notes if the first movie was a dumpster fire this one is just a dumpster it's not as horrible but also not as exciting you were not wrong that perfect description it's uh incredibly problematic but i think the fact that they didn't have as much to work with. They didn't try to. Right. And it, it, it kind of worked in their favor. I, I mean, it's debatable. Mm -hmm. um, shifting gears a bit. Uh, three years after that, we get Dragon Lance, Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Yeah. Um, have you read those books? So I, and this is where my regular audience might like pick up stones to throw at me. I've actually not read the <laughs> Dragon Lance books. I don't know why I haven't. It's just other D&D &D books kind of appealed more to me. I, I read the Icewind Dale series. Uh, I've read the Dark Sun series. And that was more appealing to me than Dragonlance. Uh, that being said, you know, I understand it's beloved. It's a classic. And I also understand that this movie is an adaptation of the first novel and from what I have read from people who have actually read the book, it adapts maybe about a third of that novel. Definitely doesn't include any character development, I'll tell you that much. No, none at all. Um, and from everybody I know that's read the books, probably one of the best parts of the story completely omitted in that. Um Going in blind, having not read the first book, not re having read the, the trilogy of the, of that, uh, the Dragonlance Chronicles, um, I was convinced by Sandro that it was worth watching and that it was a great adaptation. Now, to, to give him pause here, he, he had not seen it since 2008. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. Uh, happy memories of a movie that he thought he saw, I guess. Um. Again, though, you're you're dealing with mainly a TV cast, mm -hmm. uh, which is never really going to draw a major audience. Not in 2008, really, anyway. Um, so we've got Michael Rosenbaum, uh, Kiefer Sutherland, Lucy Lawless, Michelle Trachtenberg, uh, Jason Marsden, when you want to deal with a voiceover. Um, not bad, but not going to be a draw and not going to get your series any real attention. Um, and I, I've, I've been talking about problems with these movies so much rather than like pros and cons, it's all cons, but try and find the pros here. Yeah. Um, 
again, we're going direct to DVD release, no theatrical release. Mm-hmm. Um, limited marketing again. Um, I don't know what they were thinking with the animation style they chose. Yeah. Um, uh, take it away. Th- there <laughs> have been there have been series that have blended uh, computer animation with hand drawn animation before and done it well. Uh, there are several recent animes that have done this well. Attack on Titan does it. Um, Fantastic. Tiger and Bunny did it a little bit. Uh, it was even done as early as uh, the 1997 or 1994 was actually when the show started, the Spider-Man cartoon from the 90s. There was a little yeah. bit of that in there too. And honestly, going back and watching that, it holds up pretty well. Uh, but this does not. This probably didn't even look good at the time. I, there's no way it could have. No. There's no way it could have. It is such a jarring visual mm-hmm. that you, if you're not smiling, you're, you're laughing. Right. Or, or you're in complete disgust and ripping the DVD out of your DVD player or just like slamming your monitor into the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you had said too, like they're condensing so much story into an hour and a half. Yeah. Like the first book is almost 450 pages. Mm-hmm you are not getting any quality of that in 90 minutes. There's no way it's happening. But there are some people that just kind of hang on to this as being a a legit adaptation and probably one of the best attempts at getting the story out there on on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, Your thoughts on the next film, which would be 2012's uh, Dungeons & Dragons, The Book of Vile Darkness. So this is an interesting one. On one hand, this is the closest that we get to kind of a uh, a spark of in- ingenuity here. There, there's there's so- there's mm-hmm. something there underneath the surface. You can tell that at some point there was a good idea here. The problem is that the good idea, a story of essentially a paladin, uh kind of testing the boundaries of his oath and having to do some really nasty things uh, to ultimately do what he thinks is good, but maybe even that might not be good. There's complexity in theory to this story. In practice, it's buried underneath a lot of schlock and nastiness. This vile is a good word to describe it this movie is at times just kind of unnerving in in the way that it portrays its characters in the things that it decides to show you it like this movie it's it just kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit yeah that that makes perfect sense too uh, I honestly thought that it was a really interesting creative decision to take it so dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, as an outsider uh, of D and D culture, basically, um, a great way to bring D and D into people's lives is to take a different stance on it and hit them with something that they are unaware of what D and D can be. Yeah. Um, go a little bit darker. Take more of a horror route. Um, because you can mix some really dark fantasy into very good storytelling on television, maybe. 
um, you're not really going to get a whole lot of opportunity starting off in film. But it, it's a very interesting stance and a very, I would say, ballsy move mm-hmm. for them to do. And I would say probably the standout of the three live action films for me. And that really caught me off guard. I did not expect anything from this film. Yeah. And while it's been about a week or so since I watched it last, and I don't fully remember everything, I remember my curiosity being piqued and realizing that this is something that they probably should have kind of tackled from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But that that's just that one. It, it, this um, is another movie that really could have used like I, it's weird to say this but it almost could have used another hour of runtime just because so much of the emotional weight of the story rests on the inner turmoil of Grayson the main character but they don't actually ever establish that there's any kind of inner turmoil it's really just Grayson going from moment to moment from horrible thing to horrible thing and the way that they try to kind of emotionally pay it all off at the end doesn't work because we haven't spent any meaningful time with any of the characters, much less Grayson. No, no. It's definitely flawed in the way it tells the story, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what kind of helped me get into it more was the fact that it was filled with unknown actors, to me anyway. Um, that way you don't get the distraction of, hey, it's Jeremy Irons, or hey, it's Bruce Payne again. Uh, or doesn't that guy sound like Kiefer Sutherland? It's, who are these people? These are all strangers to me. I can much more easily accept them as the characters that they're presenting on screen. Now, character depth obviously lacking, but it was nice and refreshing in that sense. Yep. And somehow they managed to get the same budget of $12 million that uh, Wrath of the Dragon God had. And I think without the expectation and and you know paycheck that bigger actors would require they could actually disperse that money a bit more according to how they expected the production to go and i think it was a little bit more successful for that yeah um (laughs) the the distribution of this movie is a nightmare um i don't know if you've looked into that or not but the distribution company that hold or holds the rights to it went under almost immediately after its release. <laughs> um, at that point, it hadn't really made its way to North America yet. Mm-hmm. So they somehow, even though they went completely bankrupt, managed to hold on to distribution rights. So if anybody wants to see uh, the book of Vile Darkness uh, legally, um, you're going to have to buy a DVD from somebody in the UK or in Germany. Um, and a lot of people missed the opportunity of seeing it. Uh, and I think had it gotten that North American release, maybe a bit wider on DVD, even just like streaming at that point, cause we're talking 2020 or 2020 or sorry, 2012. Um, I think it would have opened up a lot of people's eyes, mm-hmm. but th- you know, the positives, like I said before, yes, we're dealing with character or sorry, actors anyway, that we don't know so we can get a little bit more involved with them but there are no expectations for this movie to do well at this point anybody who's been following any of the films they know they're going to be disappointed so there is that positive in that this is surprisingly more competent while obviously lacking some elements that we would deem necessary 
it is a, a better foray into attracting people to the brand, I believe. Mm-hmm. Again, 86 minute runtime is more digestible. Uh, it uses the time wisely to tell the story. But like you said, we're just going to jumping from scene to scene to scene without actual character growth, any development. Um, and that's the last we hear of D&D in film for, well, up until really next year. Mm-hmm. And and before we jump into that one, uh, Crafty Matt here in chat has brought up something. Uh, there, there's a particular movie from the 80s. It actually came out a year after Mazes and Monsters in 1983. This is a movie that a lot of people say is a good example of a Dungeons and Dragons movie. And it was actually originally developed as a D&D movie before uh, the producer said that uh, they couldn't sell it with the D&D name on it, probably for obvious reasons, based on what we talked about. Curious. Uh, but this movie is Krull. Krull was a D&D movie? Yes, it, it initially began life as a D&D movie. Interesting. That goes in very different directions than what I would have expected out of Dungeons and Dragons. Have, have you seen Crawl? I have seen it, but it's been a long time. Yeah, definitely one I think both of us should revisit because I have a lot of questions now. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yep. So looking looking back at what we've been given up until now, overall perception, like. Do you think that this run of film have done fans of Dungeons and Dragons so dirty that it's irreparable? Or do you think there's hope moving forward? I think that what this series of movies has demonstrated is that because of the nature of the property, because essentially like it's a licensed property, it's like uh Batman or Superman or G.I. Joe or something like that. Studios want to treat it one certain way. Mm-hmm. But because it's not those things, it's Dungeons and Dragons, it doesn't work to treat it that way. Agreed. There's a lot of aspects of D that are just kind of anathema to your your uh typical like Hollywood suit. And the other thing that's also kind of brought these movies down is the obligation to have some kind of dragon presence in the movie because it's called Dungeons and Dragons. And if you put a movie out called Dungeons and Dragons with no dragons, someone's going to start asking questions. Yeah, I guess people do take the title very literally. Yeah. Um, rather than just a setting of mm-hmm. sorts. Um, one thing that they haven't really gone full into yet, which it looks like we're getting now, is the exact opposite of what I said they should do, or what I think they should do. And it looks like we're going comedy. Yeah. How do you feel about that being a main element of a new Dungeons and Dragons film. 
So I've made no secret on the show that I have basically no optimism for this D&D movie coming up. Um, it looks it, it looks like they pulled a Men in Black International. Someone, I was going to say Thor. Someone at the studio saw a Marvel movie, probably Guardians of the Galaxy, and thought, yes. let's do that, but we're going to make it you know, fantasy and stuff like that. So it's not D and D it's we're going to be Marvel also rands while the Marvel cinematic universe is essentially on its way out. It's, it's tanking. It's not doing great right now. So we're going to jump on a trend from optimistically like 10 years ago and see if we can make that work. The scary thing there, I think it might, (laughs) <laughs> I really think it's going to work and it's going to be grabbing the younger fans, the younger players who are still super keen on Led Zeppelin playing over Thor trailers. Like that's what we're getting. We're getting mm-hmm. that in the D and D world and it looks fun. It doesn't look like it, it belongs in Dungeons and Dragons uh, lore. But again, I don't, I don't know this. This is, as, like I said, an outsider, but it seems like they're just trying to attract people in with non D and D elements and just hit them with it over and over again. I think you're going to see this do very well. I think we're going to see another sequel, maybe two, and then we're going to have a Marvel problem. I mean, casting Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez, very odd choices, but they can afford them. I think it can work. I just, I don't want this to work. I want them to be more serious with it. It's it doesn't seem like they're handling the property with respect at this point. I I don't think it'll work cuz honestly I think there's a little bit of fatigue around movies like this. Yeah. And and the what I point to with that um I don't know it didn't do as well as I hoped it would but Dune Mm-hmm. Dune did pretty well, considering what Dune was. Ultimately, it did well, and that was a movie that took itself very seriously. It had a very kind of dense lore around it, and it really just went straight for sincerity and, uh, you know, playing everything with a straight face. There was no piss taking whatsoever with Dune. On the same side you have a movie like the batman which did incredibly well that the batman is a three hour slow burn noir movie that just so happens to have a superhero in it (laughs) um i think there's a desire whether or not audiences really have realized this i think there's a desire for big budget movies that take themselves seriously and that treat the audience like they're adults i think a forward-thinking, smart studio executive would think we need to try this because everyone else is doing the Marvel thing still. Everyone else is mm-hmm. still trying to capture that magic. But there's a couple people who are doing things a little bit differently. Why don't we try to do something like that? Why don't we make a fantasy movie with a heavy focus on these characters, these, uh, you know, 
misfits are interacting with each other and working together but also opposed to each other to accomplish this goal in a world that wants them dead. I think that's what a good D&D movie would be. I agree completely. You need a team that's willing to treat the property with the respect it deserves. And I feel like that's what we got with Dune. Mm -hmm. um, finally. God, look at the production history of other attempts. It, it was a nightmare and we finally got what we deserved. Mm -hmm. And it's about time the same thing happens with Dungeons and Dragons. I just don't think that's what this is going to be. And it, it, I hate the fact that even though you say you don't think it's going to work. I mean, Marvel did it for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think they're willing yet to take such a big risk on such a, a dark take on a film version of Dungeons and Dragons anyway. Mm -hmm. But a question I have for you involving that is, do you see a potential series, streaming series, television series, actually being able to do the property justice? Yes. Me as well. And, and the way that I would go about doing it, uh, I've mentioned the series already. Although you could do it with almost any D&D book series out there. But the Icewind Dale trilogy. Mm -hmm. If someone wanted to make those three books into three movies, I think that would do very well. The story is light and fun enough that kind of your average audience member would be able to, you know, latch on and say, okay, this is a fun event. You know, this is an adventure movie like Lord of the Rings. People love the Lord of the Rings movies. I feel like the, the tone is kind of right around what cinematic Lord of the Rings would be for those books. Um, the characters are fun and interesting. The D and D, uh, kind of fandom already is in love with the characters of Wolfgar and Dritz Duarden and Brunner Battlehammer and Caddy Bree. Uh, mm -hmm. You have a lot of diversity of like different kinds of characters in that group. You've got Dritz, who's a dark elf ranger. You've got, you know, Brunor, who's this kind of old cuss dwarf. You have Wolfgar, who's a young barbarian aspiring hero. And then Caddy Bree, who's a young girl trying to prove herself in a very harsh world. Those are characters that people can get behind that are distinct enough from each other to make for a good cast. Yeah, I agree. I, I completely agree. Um, the only concern for me right now would be viewer exhaustion from the common belief that Game of Thrones ended on such a down note. Mm. Uh, how people are already tired with uh, the rings of power and people are already tired about the changes that were made to wheel of time. So I think if they were going to go through with that, it would be a show made for those fans, not trying to specifically just focus on bringing in new ones. Mm. And I think if they did that, there is a high chance of success. I, I really like your idea. And I, I think that's the direction that people should be looking into. And God willing, we'll get something like that in the near future. Mm. The other way that they could go, and uh, this would be a huge gamble. I can see it paying off, but I might also just be blinded by my own uh, my own love for this property. 
but there's a setting in D&D called Dark Sun. Okay. Dark Sun is essentially... I call it Conan the Barbarian meets Mad Max. Okay, those are two of my favorite things in the world. Basically... Do tell. Basically, in the world of Athos, which is where Dark Sun is set, there was a magical apocalypse where these sorcerer kings uh, essentially used so much magic that they destroyed the Earth. Because in the world of Dark Sun, casting magic has a physical cost to it, so... Most mages are drawing the power for their spells from the earth itself. And so you'll see someone cast a fireball and like a circle of a hundred feet of grass around them just goes dead immediately. I like it. And so the, the world of Athos after this magical apocalypse is one where most of the world's a desert Metal has become so scarce that almost nothing is made out of metal. And basically, it's it's the hardest of hard worlds. Like, slavery is not just a common practice, but like a socially acceptable, well, you know, why wouldn't you have slaves if you could type thing. People... Like, life has become so cheap on this world because so many people die so often that it's just, like, the most desolate wasteland. And in that setting, you essentially have a built-in contrast for now we're going to follow this group of heroes who's going to rise up in this world that's completely against them. And they probably aren't fighting for you know, fixing this world, restoring it back to what it was, but they're fighting uh, to to make this day just a little bit better than the last day. So there's this kind of, uh, like, yearning hopefulness to being a hero in this world of Dark Sun. Uh, again, this would be very hard to pull off. It would be very serious. You'd have to take it very seriously. But if someone were willing to give this property kind of the the very serious treatment make this something like for adults specifically i think you would have uh one hell of a tv show or one hell of a movie series just built around this world of dark sun you sold me from the very beginning i'm 100 percent in on this like i need to know more right now and i'm going to look it up when we're done talking uh, it sounds absolutely wonderful and exactly what we need to see, whether it's on the big screen, whether it's on TV screens like that. I think that would be the perfect entry point for brand new fans while acknowledging the passions and loyalty of existing fans. Mm-hmm. Um, they These people need to be talking to you, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, where... Um, where where do you think? Okay, say, say this new movie, Honor Among Thieves, does not do well. Mm-hmm. How long before we actually get something similar, or like an actual D and D property out there? So, like in in film or television, like, do you think it's going to happen soon, or do you think it just lays dormant for a while? Because I'm worried that it may lay dormant. If Honor Among Thieves doesn't do well, 
Um, my prediction is not only will the property lay dormant for a while, but I think Hasbro is going to have a difficult time justifying holding on to Wizards of the Coast. I think a yep. lot of D&D's future is leveraged in how well this movie does. And so if it doesn't hit, it's going to be real bad for anyone who is devoted to playing a game with a D and ampersand and a D on the cover. Because uh, they, they've essentially tied so much of their focus into turning D&D into a lifestyle brand like Marvel, like, uh, you know, any other kind of big entertainment property at this point. They want D&D to be that. And if the movie doesn't hit, it's going to be a long time before anyone takes another look at what can we do with, you know, this property. And do you think that they'll, they might actually try and stick with television? Cause I'm looking at crossovers you see in, in, in book or, or in game. Um, we're seeing a lot of things like, well, stranger things brought it back into popular culture for people who weren't already playing. Um, but you're seeing comic books of Rick and Morty and dungeons and dragons and weird things that you would never expect to go together. There's trying to mashing in. Are, is it like a try to capitalize on a trend? Or do you think it does actually have that long-lasting power? That might be a bit of a ridiculous question, but I just find it really strange that we're seeing these unrelated properties being thrown into this world. So I, I think what's going on with with that side of things is five, the fifth edition of D&D has been very successful. It's been the most successful edition of D&D uh, since the 80s. And... Along with that, there comes the the success of the show Critical Role. Yes. Uh, which I don't... Are, are you familiar with Critical Role? I am, yes. And they actually... They have a very successful show on Amazon Prime based on their world. It's not... It's not exactly what you would call, like, pure D&D, &D, but the people who like Critical Role like that show. I've never seen it myself, but it's it's actually... That side of things is doing very well. They're not officially official they, they basically mm -hmm. are but aren't but what has happened with D, D is because it's now owned by a company like hasbro it, it, essentially they they want to turn D, &D into gi joe or transformers yep. or any of the other properties that they have mm -hmm. and the the way that they've decided to go about doing that is by kind of duct taping these other properties to it so they're like hey people who like D, D seem to also like rick and morty so what if we put rick and morty in D, D? and i mean some people like that box set i've never read it i'm not particularly interested in in mixing those two things um same thing with Stranger Things, just because of the setting of Stranger Things, D&D &D is obviously, you know, something that these kids would have been into in the 80s. Yeah. Um, personally, I've kind of had my fill of Stranger Things. I, I'm with you. I think the show really boils down to, hey, do you remember the 80s? And unfortunately, uh, for the people who make that show, uh, the answer to that question for me is no. No, I don't remember the 80s. Uh, but... Um, I, I do. <laughs> and that's not how they were. Yeah. But, um, 
that's that's a very good point, especially with Hasbro, because they are notorious for dropping things that don't work very soon. Yeah. Uh, and while maintaining the rights to the the property, uh, they'll divvy up rights to other elements of it for other television, film, mm-hmm. action figures, board games, whatever. They're they're money hungry. They're a, a corporation now. Yeah. Like they that is what they want. They want money, and what's not making money, they're going to ditch. Mm-hmm. Um. That that's a very scary uh, position that I I wasn't really thinking about. And so. something that uh, Crafty Matt's pointing out in chat here, both of those box sets, the Stranger Things and the Rick and Morty box set, were not financially successful. Um, no, they were not. Yeah, they they didn't they didn't bring uh, fans of Rick and Morty or fans of Stranger Things who weren't already into D and D into the hobby. D and D players were really upset that essentially money and resources were being put behind uh these properties instead of the ones that already existed in the D world uh that upset D fans so yeah those yeah those rightfully so that's that strategy didn't work and i i see them repeatedly trying to do that until they just get so frustrated someone's gonna lose out huge yeah, we shall see. It, what it comes down to, unfortunately, I think what it comes down to is you have to get the right person in the right boardroom who's willing to kind of make a decision that's off the wall. And that happens so very rarely, uh, just in any facet of business. Uh, and until that yeah. happens, you're just going to get these kind of conventional but completely brain dead missing the point uh, <laughs> attempts at hey the kids like this and we want the kids to like D, so let's duct tape these things together and and throw it out there they'll eat it up yeah it's the mcdonald's happy meal toy attempt bring this to our store we'll bring more people in it's not it's not always going to work mm-hmm. but um we 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 have talked about some devastatingly terrible movies yeah um and coming out on your brilliant idea i i do have to say of of that series or film um there there is hope uh but like you said you just need that right person to be in the boardroom when those ideas start coming across mm-hmm. um it will happen like, like you said it happened with dune uh it's happening with the batman um the potential is there um our hope is my hope is there i know your hope is oh, yeah. but uh i'm i'm very curious to see where we go from here uh, I'm, I'm not sure yet and i think a lot of it will come down to uh what are like smaller movies going to do I, mm-hmm. I think we're almost to like that that point in the 70s where uh kind of that new school of hollywood took over where uh you know the the big kind of big budget disaster movies were you know flopping left and right but yep. with very minimal budgets people like uh francis ford coppola and martin scorsese and george lucas were making these really interesting uh really unique movies that eventually became the big budget movies so i i think what we're waiting on right now creatively is the next 
uh, disruptor, the next person like, uh, you know, a, a Scorsese or a George Lucas or a Francis Ford Coppola to make something that just blows everyone away, something that no one was expecting to succeed that just catches on uh, like <laughs> wildfire. I don't know what that would be. I have my hopes for what would catch on. I'm, I'm hoping... Uh, people will go back to what you know we in in the D world call appendix n which is essentially uh old weird fantasy pulp stories stuff like robert e howard's conan the barbarian uh fritz Leiber's right. fofford and the gray mouser uh stuff like that that's all an untapped gold mine in my opinion, as far as adaptations or, you know, making things that have that same feel and tone to them. I hope for fantasy, someone looks to go, you know, go back to those stories and says, hey, these are interesting and weird and not at all like anything that's out there. And they can be done with a somewhat reduced budget. Let's do something crazy with one of these properties or inspired by one of these properties. And then Hopefully that's going to be the spark that sets everything off. But again, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I could only hope that would happen, but I, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think it will though. I, I have shelves and shelves of Conan books, uh, Solomon Kane, um, uh, Cull. Mm. Like I, I love all those stories and, we get movies every now and then, but just a solid lower budget show set in one of those worlds could take everybody by storm. Yeah. And that's all you need. You just need that interest. You know, plant those seeds, water it every now and then, and watch what will grow from it. I think they would be very surprised. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. Mm-hmm. And honestly, uh, that Solomon Kane movie that came out, I think, like 10 years ago at this point. Yeah. Pretty good. It was a pretty good movie. I liked it. I liked it a lot. And uh, Definitely one to pick up. Well, while we're on the subject of, of Conan and Solomon Kane, uh, I, I don't know if anyone told you this, uh, but the Howard in my name is not coincidental. I had heard something. <laughs> I don't know how far down the line, but that's pretty fucking awesome, man. He- I, I recently, so I got into it on Twitter with someone who is also related to Robert E. Howard. He's being a real, he's being a real douche, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Crafty Matt knows what I'm talking about. I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to mention him any more than I have to, because uh, he, he really was being a real douche, but Great. Uh, Robert E. Howard is my fourth cousin five times removed. Okay. Essentially going all the way back to the 1700s in Virginia. Uh, John Howard had multiple sons. Uh, one of them was my seventh great grandfather. And one of them was Robert E. Howard's great, great, great grandfather. And so his branch of the family, that guy's name was Mordecai Howard Sr. They went down to Georgia, and then eventually from Georgia, they went to Texas, and that's where Robert E. Howard comes from. Yep. My side of the family... 
went from Virginia to the Piedmont area of North Carolina and essentially stayed there forever. They're still there. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy, man. How do you even come across stuff like this? So because our last names are both Howard, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool if I were related to him? What are the odds? You know, I'm not related to Dwight Howard. I'm not related to the Philadelphia Phillies uh, player, Ryan Howard. There's lots of people with Howard in their name that I'm not related to. I'm probably not related. But then I was reading Solomon Kane, and the edition that I was reading had H.P. Lovecraft's obituary for Robert E. Howard in it. Yep. And... In that obituary, H.P. Lovecraft said Howard was born of planter stock from Georgia and the Carolinas. And when I read that, I went, wait a minute. That's my family. (laughs) Yep. And so then I got on Ancestry.com and I did my entire family tree on my dad's side all the way back to the 1700s and found the thread that connected me to Robert E. Howard. And so that's, that's how I found that out. That is insanity. That's very fucking cool too. Uh, although you, I love how you brought up the, um, the obituary by Lovecraft weird connection. Those two had oh, allowing yeah. to like share some of each other's creations in stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that'd be an interesting way to bring some cosmic horror into darker fantasy. And, and two, people who could not be more different from each other. Oh, God. I know, right? You had a roughneck Texan. Dad was a country doctor, grew up in oil country, boxing enthusiast who liked to pose shirtless with guns and knives, Robert E. Howard. Yep. And nervous patrician H.P. Lovecraft, (laughs) who essentially never left his house. Yeah, I mean, it it gets a little bit worse when you talk about Lovecraft too, but we need to talk about that right now. It, it, it's so interesting how these two like completely different people just ended up uh, like being essentially good friends, even though I don't think they ever yeah. actually met face to face. All through letters, I believe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Two amazing creative elements too. It's fantastic stuff. Yeah. And honestly, like between the two of them and, you know, like Clark Ashton Smith and some of the others, you essentially have uh, modern fantasy fiction and uh, the the game of D&D. So without Mm -hmm. these two very weird, very diametrically (laughs) opposed people, uh, none of what we were doing today uh, could have taken place. Uh, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. uh, None of these movies would exist. It's interesting how all of this comes about. Yeah. A very bizarre chain reaction. Mm-hmm. That worked out for the most part, I'll say. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, with that, um, do, do you have any other thoughts about these movies or just kind of D&D uh, on on film in general uh, that you wanted to discuss here tonight. Um, I'm I'm done with the movies that I've seen. <laughs> I've watched I watched them all way too close together, and I never want to do that again. 
That being said, I really do want to see it go darker. I want to see a horror film set with D&D lore, set in any of the storylines. From what you've told me, from what all of my friends have told me, the material is there. Take it and do something with it. Like Avoid over-the-top fantasy that we've been having shoved down our throats and go much darker and just bring us something new, something we haven't seen on film yet. They've got the means to do it. Mm-hmm. They have the rights to do it. Yeah. It wouldn't be difficult. Just try something new. That's mm-hmm. all I want. Just give me something new because I think they could take what they already own and make so much money off of it just by trying to do something fresh. Yep. That's exactly what I want. Yeah. And yourself? And- to, to the executives out there, in case any of you happen to stumble upon this. Two examples that I want to point you towards. The cultural juggernaut of Japan that is Berserk. One of my favorite stories of all time. Berserk is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Berserk is also extremely popular. The other one, very heavily inspired by Berserk. Dark Souls. Yeah. Those games sell like hotcakes. People love Dark Souls. People love Elden Ring. Those are very popular IPs with a darker fantasy feel to them that audiences have already proven they will shell out their hard-earned money for. Why not try something similar? They just announced the new uh, Blu-ray box set for Berserk. Hmm. I've already committed to it. (laughs) I don't even know what's going to be different. What's their changing? I'm like, yes, give me that. I will buy that right now. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Very smart call. Brilliant. I, I didn't realize that we had so much in common as far as, like, you know, liking Berserk and liking uh, Conan and stuff like that. Oh, I will just read that stuff on end for days. Yeah, it's it's interesting to like read stuff like that or read stuff like Conan the Barbarian and then juxtapose it with kind of like your average person's view of what a fantasy movie is. Mm -hmm. Because I think most people will think either Lord of the Rings or Disney. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there there was one thing I wanted to bring up. I'm sorry. Uh, Did you notice when watching Wrath of the Dragon God that the Elven Archer is uh, costumed as Casca? from berserk yes and uh, nobody else seems to catch that the other thing uh grayson in Mm -hmm. uh the book of vile darkness looks a lot like guts Mm -hmm. he's got the kind of guts type armor he's got the two-handed sword uh he's got the cloak his hair even looks kind of similar he's too much of a to be guts but he looks like guts yeah like the the references, if only visual, are out there. So like I, they they know what they're doing. They just need to go all out with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I just need I need someone to look past kind of how off putting some of the uh, like artwork in Berserk is, and yeah, yes, there's lots of creepiness. There's lots of weird icky things in those yeah. stories, but the weird icky things are in service of a higher purpose. It's a it's a, a point of contrast. 
And there yeah. have been weird, icky things in movies before. So, you know, it, as long as it's in service to a good story where those things are being overcome and, like, triumphed over, why not give it a shot? It's the worst that can happen. It's still going to be better than anything else they've done. Right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So I think we've kind of said everything there is to be said about the, well, definitely everything there is to be said about these movies and, and a lot yeah. about how they could be better. <laughs> anything, anything would be better. Yes. You, you could... <laughs> And people do this on YouTube all the time. You could put a camera on someone's D&D game and it's more entertaining than any of the movies that have put been put out. Yeah. Yep. I even, um, uh, honestly, I totally forgot what I was just going to say. Oh, yeah, just watch-alongs, like you were saying. Like, that's how I kind of got prepped into going into the movies to see what kind of lore or what elements of the gameplay I could expect that I just never got. Mm -hmm. Probably just going to have to go back to some of that. Much more entertaining. Yep. And to uh, to our mutual friend who uh, will be on the show uh, here in the next couple weeks, Tim Mathias, um, <laughs> I just want to uh, assure you, Tim, when you see this, your show would have to take a severe severe dip in quality to be even close to any of these things. Your show is that much more entertaining than all of these movies. <laughs> it's yeah. not wrong. Not wrong, Tim. You'd have to replace all of your cast members with your cats and try to get them to play D&D. &D. I mean, that's actually an interesting idea unto itself. But yes, that's... Uh, just rest assured, Tim, your show will always be better than any of these cinematic D&D &D releases. Much better. A thousand times better. He's a true champ. He is, absolutely. So uh, with that, uh, there's the final introductory question that i am now saving for the end of the show because i like to get people's just honest opinions on this i'll tell you ben the answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be if you could put anything on a t-shirt what would it be i have encountered this question before <laughs> uh checking out some videos of yours and mine is actually an idea for your show. Okay. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I started wondering, is this actually my idea? Because I think it's just too good to not have been done already. And that would be, and I don't know if you're a fan of this show or not, but William Shatner just rolling DeForest Kelly down a hallway. Because <laughs> technically he would be rolling bones. <laughs> I like it. I it's like cheap. It. It's fun. I'm surprised it hasn't been done yet. But, yeah, that that would be it for me, man. <laughs> I appreciate it. I like it. <laughs> I, yeah, you're too kind on that one. I thought you were going to steal an idea of mine that I've had forever. Ever since I started asking this question on the show, 
which is to make a t-shirt that just has the word anything on it. I like it. I like that a lot. How have you not done this yet? I need to make Rollin' Bones merch. That's going to be in the first... The first wave of Rollin' Bones merch that comes out, one's just going to be the show's <laughs> logo, and then the other one is just going to be the word anything. Uh, well, I'll be buying, so please do. Absolutely. Right on. Cool. So with that, guys, that's going to do it for another episode of Rollin' Bones. Uh, ben, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I didn't know quite what to expect in talking <laughs> about these just truly ghastly movies. <laughs> But I think we've had a, a good conversation, and I think we've honestly given people a little bit to think about as far as what would make for a good D and D movie, or what kind of direction, uh, you know, D and D movies should go in. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, thank you for for you know being a part of this conversation and, and helping uh, kind of bring us to uh, that elevated level above just talking about how bad movies are bad. Yeah, and I was hoping to bring up the fact that why some of these movies are bad, looking at it from a business perspective as well as like a story perspective and so on. So mm-hmm. hopefully people kind of understand what we're working with and what we need to have happen before we're going to get something that's quite good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I want to say thank you so much for having me on, Ryan, too. This has been a blast. I, I, I feel like we've known each other for longer than we had, <laughs> and I, I really want to talk to you more, specifically about the world of... Uh, of the worlds that Howard created, as well as uh, your thoughts on Berserk. Gotcha. Cool. So uh, where can people find the BS Bargain Bin podcast? Uh, you can find us uh, on YouTube, uh, BS Bargain Bin, um, bsbargainbin.com, on Twitter, at BS Bargain Bin. And honestly, we do listener picks every month. Anybody who's wanting to check out two guys talk about movies, and maybe we'll cover something you want us to talk about, draw us a line. We'll see what will happen. Um, we're, our feet are pretty firmly planted in the 80s and 90s but we step outside so uh it's just two guys having fun shooting the shit about stuff that i love and stuff i make sandra watch yep and i should <laughs> mention that uh your co-host sandra Luketic has been on the show before uh so That's anyone right. who's been around rolling bones for a while uh you should recognize sandro from uh from when he was on the show uh previously yeah and uh <laughs> <laughs> sorry he he was the one that told me about your show and and i got me so into it and i feel so bad because i make him watch all of the worst things that he's ever seen and all he ever does is turn me on to new things that i love <laughs> so thanks again for having me on ryan it, it's been a lot of fun man oh no problem at all all right all right guys so next week uh john the basic expert is coming back on the show uh we're gonna do something that i love to do around the holidays and that is talk about some Star Wars. So this will be the Rolling Bones <laughs> Star Wars holiday special uh, in the form of a mock debate. John, the basic expert, will be defending West End Games Star Wars D6 system as the superior way to roleplay Star Wars, whereas I will be championing the merits of Star Wars Saga Edition, originally published by Wizards of the Coast, using the D20 system. So uh, that will be next week. Uh, I've already primed the pump for this, but but John's going to win that debate. I, I'm really just, 
using this as an excuse to talk more about West End Game Star Wars and to, you know, contrast it with one of the other systems. So uh, until then, guys, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time.